Hello there, welcome along for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. It's a bit of a landmark episode this one because it's our 100th episode. I started this podcast over four years ago as a bit of an experiment when I was still working at the Hurriyet Daily News. Back then I certainly couldn't imagine reaching 100 episodes but here we are. Thank you for playing your part in being here for it. Particular thanks go to all our Turkey Book Talk members for supporting the podcast. If you've not signed up yet but are a listener and do get something from the podcast which I hope you do otherwise presumably you wouldn't be listening you can help us keep going for another 100 episodes by joining as a member via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account becoming a member gets you various exclusive extras they include transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published you also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which now amounts to 100 episodes and which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is part of Bloomsbury Publishing House, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. And Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, members also receive an archive of two 231 book reviews written by myself back when I was there at Hurriyet Daily News covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes are published every two weeks so the monthly membership price is no more than $6. Of course if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more then you'll certainly be more than welcome but so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our 100th episode. In it we hear from Holly Schisler. She's an associate professor of Ottoman and modern Turkish history at the University of Chicago and she joins the podcast to discuss the life and work of Ahmet Mithat Efendi, one of the most significant men of letters in the late Ottoman era. Born in 1844, Ahmet Mithat Efendi wrote many works of short and long fiction and he was also the publisher, founder and all-round guiding light behind the major Istanbul-based newspaper Tercümani Hakik. Cut. Among his novels was one called Felatun Bey and Rakim Effendi, which was written in 1875 and first appeared in an English translation from Syracuse University Press in 2016. It's an amusing story based in Istanbul, moralistically assessing the seductive appeals as well as the threats posed by modernization, Europeanization, and the rapidly changing social order. Holly Schisler wrote an afterword to the English edition and we discussed the book later in our conversation, but I started by asking her to introduce us to Ahmet Mithat Effendi. Who was he and why was he important? Ahmed Mithat Efendi is a, to me, he's a really fascinating character. He's well known, of course, as a, as a novelist, but he was also the longtime editor of Tercümani Hakikat, which was certainly the most important daily newspaper published in the last 
you know, in the last quarter of the 19th century. And he's interesting because uh, he comes from a, a modest background. He doesn't come from a grandee family or a family of high-ranking Ottoman officials. Uh, he was orphaned at a young age. He spent some of his early years working in the Spice Bazaar in Istanbul. Later on, he joined his brother. His brother uh, was employed by the statesman Mithat Pasha and brought uh, his younger brother to uh, further his education. And eventually, uh, Mithat Effendi himself became a, a protege of the Pasha, which is really where the second name uh, Mithat comes from, is the fact that he was a protege of Mithat Pasha's. Uh, and he begins, uh, while he's in the uh, service of Mithat Pasha, to learn a bit about the whole trade of printing and publishing. And later on, he goes with uh, Mithat Pasha uh, when that man becomes the governor of Baghdad. And he is responsible for creating and then publishing the provincial gazette, uh, Zevra, there in Baghdad, which is bilingual in Ottoman and Arabic. Later on, he leaves government service and he goes back to Istanbul to take care of family obligations. And he begins to really publish for a living, you know, in other words, not as a civil servant or uh, as a sideline, but in his own right, he begins to publish for a living. He buys a printing press. He writes short stories, which he prints and circulates. And then he begins later on, he begins to publish the newspaper Terjumani Hakikat. And he translates also, I should say, many, many works on political philosophy, on philosophy itself, novels, and he writes travelogues, as well as writing his own fictions. And all of these things he also publishes and sells. And he becomes one of the most successful writers and publishers of his day. You know, and he's really able to make a living from his writing. And that's, I think, one of the most interesting things about him as a literary figure in that age, that he's not engaged in a sort of vanity press where he has private wealth that can underwrite his ability to publish journals that don't have much circulation, but become vehicles for his ideas. He is a man of ideas. He does use the things that he writes to convey his ideas, but he also has to make a living off it. And so he's always interested in reaching a broad audience, both for material reasons and for intellectual reasons. And I think that makes him a rather interesting figure in this period. So Tojuman the Hakikat uh, is this newspaper, I believe he founded it, and he was a kind of guiding light behind it, and it really did go on for a very long time, I think over four decades, you know, covering the entire sort of end of the Ottoman era, and right through to 1922, I think it was published. What was its character, I mean, and what was his role in it? Who was reading it, and, and what kind of things were they publishing? Well, you know, it's really always difficult to say who was reading. I mean, this is, of course, the, the holy grail of everybody who does work on the history of the press in any country. And that is that you that you wish that you had detailed information about who was reading it, but you really don't. But I think it's fair to say that it was one of the most significant publications of the era. It certainly had a pretty large, I'm trying to think of the word in English, tirage, uh, you know, the, the number of copies. Certain, well, we don't know what the circulation was, but it had a large, the number of issues printed was large. The paper itself probably had a bigger circulation than the number of issues printed, just in the sense it was very much the case in that era that newspapers were read in reading rooms and circulated among friends and read aloud in coffee houses so that the actual circulation in the sense of people who were exposed to the content is probably significantly larger than the number of copies printed. But it's a really interesting paper. It has all kinds 
kinds of stuff in it. Ahmed Mithad Effendi was very active in it, at least until 1912. He wrote pieces for it every single day himself. In that sense, it, it really was a vehicle for his own ideas and very much shaped by him. So it has all kinds of things in it. It has, for instance, it publishes the schedules and all kinds of information about the arrival and departure of ships, both passenger liners and freighters. And there, in that sense, provides useful information for the business community. It publishes current events, information domestically and internationally, and some of that is taken from foreign newspapers and translated into Ottoman. It publishes serialized novels, his own and those of other people, uh, short stories, letters and editorial pieces. So it's a it's a diverse newspaper that includes commercial news, political news, and fiction and commentary. Was it uh, ever closed down? Because this covered a very turbulent time with many big political shifts. And the majority of the time that it was uh, publishing was uh, under the rule of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And of course, that was a time of great censorship and closures of newspapers and whatnot. So was Tajumani Hakikat uh, ever closed down? Uh, what was its relationship with the authorities? And if it was never closed down, you know, how was it, how was it able to publish continuously without uh, getting into trouble? Well, that's a, a kind of an interesting story. Uh, Ahmed Midhad Effendi actually, in his early life, did have some friendships and some associations with, you know, the young Ottomans. But later on, he, he ruptured with them. And by the time that Sultan Abdul Hamid II came to the throne, he had established friendly or congenial relationship to Abdul Hamid II and to the regime. So he was more... I want to say more conservative, but I'm not sure that's the right word. Uh, Ahmed Mirhat Effendi was somebody who was very interested in thinking about how the Ottoman Empire could become stronger, especially sort of in economic and scientific terms, stronger and more modern and sort of engage in a process of self-strengthening. But he differed a great deal from some of the other uh, intellectuals of the era in the sense that although he was interested in modernization, he was quite quite strong in his sense of himself as a, as a Muslim and as a person of faith. And he adhered to a set of social values and outlook that were maybe more typical of the Esnaf than they were of a highly Europeanized intellectual elite in that period. This is something, of course, that shows up very clearly in his novel, uh, Felatun Bey il Effendi, that, you know, the character of Felatun Bey has embraced uh, what I think Ahmed Mithar Effendi viewed as a, a false modernity in which many destructive and superficial elements of European ways were attractive to him. And uh, he spent his time in casinos and womanizing and drinking and buying clothes and furniture that he thought were fashionable. Whereas Rakim Effendi lives in his personal life, a much more sort of traditional middle-class Ottoman Muslim existence focused on a kind of domesticity and thrift and hard work. But of course, Rakim also reads and speaks French and is current with all the uh, latest intellectual trends. And so he kind of represents a, a well-grounded, well-educated Ottoman working towards what one might call a Muslim modernity. And I think that that embodies Ahmed Medhahad Effendi's own views of the direction that the Ottoman Empire should take. And in that sense, he was not an enemy of the Hamidian regime, but was willing to work with it in a way that caused him 
become the enmity of his former young Ottoman colleagues. And I, I think that also accounts to some extent for some of the negative critical reception of his work in the subsequent early Republican commentaries on uh, the history of Ottoman literature. Um, I think there's a kind of ideological hostility to him. But in any case, he had good relations with Abdul Hamid II. He actually had some received some government sinecures that provided him with income. Terjimani Hakikat from time to time received subventions from the government, and his relationship to the regime was not difficult. So, Felatun Bey and Rakim Effendi is this book. It was published uh, in an English version a few years ago, and uh, you were involved in that edition, uh, writing an afterword for it. How was it received when it was published originally in, in Istanbul? You know, what was it significant? Obviously, the plot of the novel we've delved into a little bit there is very convoluted and intricate. But, you know, who were Felatun Bey and Rakim Effendi? Felatun is this sort of example of a kind of Ottoman dandy or zuppe. And uh, I gather this was a common literary trope at the time. Just delve a little bit deeper into those two characters and how they're contrasted and how that contrast reflects Ahmet Mitat's uh, own sort of worldview. Felatunbe and Rakim Efendi, I think, uh, was, a, was a novel that really left a, a mark on the history of Ottoman and Turkish literature in the sense that, you know, the figure of the dandy didn't originate with Ahmet Mitad Efendi, but I think that his formulation of it in that novel somehow struck a chord and became a kind of iconic formulation of the addle-brained or empty-headed, superficially Europeanized Ottoman dandy. So the novel has a long, cast a long shadow in that sense. I guess what I would say is this, that Ahmed Mithar Efendi's works are, are, are characterized, his fictions are characterized by a kind of very strong didacticism. You know, he was known in his own day as, you know, the first teacher. You know, it's not that he ever taught in a school, it's that he was really interested in educating a very wide Ottoman public about a whole range of topics. But I think that his main focus really was the idea idea of how to achieve an Ottoman self-strengthening through a process that would embrace what he viewed as important characteristics of the modern world. And I say modern world advisedly. I think oftentimes when people talked about the modern world then, they did equate it or could equate it with the achievements of uh, Europe at that time. But I think Ahmed Mithar Effendi certainly felt that there was no particular reason why those achievements of modernity had to be limited to Europe. And he was interested in getting an Ottoman public to think about, you know, what kinds of alterations and reforms would be necessary to achieve that sort of a modernity in an Ottoman incarnation for the Ottoman Empire. His focus was very much, I would say, on what one might call, as a kind of shorthand, the Protestant ethic. Uh, he really wanted to encourage an Ottoman middle class that would be bootstrappers, you know, hardworking, thrifty, self-starters who would pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and become the economic engines of uh, what one might call an Ottoman entrepreneurialism, and also become the proper political subjects for a, an Ottoman empire in which uh, political participation would be enlarged. And so he tries to portray in his novel the difference between a kind of correct and meaningful modernity that is incarnated by Rakim Effendi and a misguided 
beloved modernity that will be incarnated by uh, Fela Tumbe as the the simple-minded dandy. So that's kind of a long-winded introduction to the novel, but let's just say, you know, here's Fela Tumbe. He comes from a a family of upstanding, well-to-do Ottoman bureaucrats. His father gives him the best uh, of everything. And the result is that Fela Tumbe doesn't know what's really good from what's superficially good. Yes, he knows languages, but only in a superficial way. He doesn't really know French. He doesn't really know Arabic or Persian. He's not well-grounded in European educational traditions or in Islamic educational traditions. He has no work ethic because everything's been handed to him on a silver platter. When his father dies, he squanders his inheritance. He doesn't seem able to constitute a meaningful family life for himself, but instead of getting married and having children and taking care of business in that way, he runs around with whores and uh, spends time in casinos until all of his family money is gone. Rakim, on the other hand, an orphan from a modest family, first receives a traditional uh, medrasa-style education, and then through tutorials and self-help, teaches himself French. He gets a job in a ministry, but he also moonlights as a translator. Uh, Eventually, he becomes known in a variety of circles as somebody who can usefully teach French to Ottoman and Turkish speakers and Ottoman to non-Ottoman speakers. And he's so successful as a teacher and translator that he's able to quit his job at the ministry. He buys for himself a young concubine and educates her. And eventually they fall in love and he manumits her and they get married and they have a happy family together. You know, and he continues to live in the, you know, in the house that he grew up in, a kind of modest, happy family life. And he's this self-made man. And ultimately, by quitting his job at the um, ministry also, he becomes somebody who's making it on his own, not merely somebody slurping away at the government trough, if you will. And in that way, I think he represents very importantly what Ahmed Mithar Effendi's hopes were for a new and better Ottoman society. You know, Felatun is a figure of fun, and he is portrayed, I think, so sharply and ridiculously that he really stuck in people's minds and became a kind of archetype of a vapid westernization. The book is you used the word didactic earlier, and uh, that's certainly true. I mean, the symbolism is very heavy-handed, to be fair. Uh, it's probably fair to say that it's not great literature, uh, but it's certainly very enjoyable and, and interesting. And uh, also, perhaps uh, listeners will get the impression here that it's a bit of a dry and sort of dull lecturing book, but it's also, I found, very, very amusing. It's full of funny little characters, little set pieces, and uh, you know, amusing little interactions between various characters that symbolize various different things. So... It's certainly a very enjoyable book, I thought. Oh, I love it. You know, Ahmed, when people write about, when uh, literary scholars, I guess, write about Ahmed Mithad Effendi, they often write about him as someone who was certainly, who certainly played a key role in the creation of Ottoman Turkish prose fiction, both because he was a prolific author himself and because his newspaper served as a location for many other important Ottoman Turkish novelists to first begin their publishing careers. And so he's, he is viewed as a foundational figure, but he's often, I, I would 
would say, denigrated in stylistic terms. You know, his literary style in Ottoman Turkish is considered to be not the greatest. And the novels themselves, you know, are sort of denigrated as, you know, overly didactic, not tightly plotted, etc. And I guess I, I feel, you know, although I'm certainly not a, a literary critic, I, I feel a little differently about it. I really enjoy many of his novels and short stories. It's true that he was extraordinarily prolific. And so there's considerable variation in the quality of his fictions. You know, some of them are much better crafted than others. And some of them, on the other hand, show the obvious signs of having been dashed off rather rapidly. But I think he has a wonderful sense of humor. So a novel like Felitun Bey Rakim is, is just a, a great pleasure to read. There are all kinds of hilarious little incidents. I think the characters, while perhaps not developed in a way that is psychologically deep, the main characters are more types than real people. Nevertheless, the characters are well drawn and engaging and believable in that sense. And the dialogues are quite natural and humorous. And I, I certainly loved reading that novel. And I have very much enjoyed other of his fiction as well. And I think in a sense, because he doesn't represent a particularly literary trend, you know, he's not in the trend of, let's say, the realists or the naturalists or the high, you know, sort of a high literary romanticism of the kind that was pursued by Nami Kemal. He kind of falls between the, the cracks and is underestimated due in some sense to the populism of his his form of expression. And maybe also, as I hinted at earlier, uh, due to some kind of ideological hostility to him as someone who initially was an ally of the young Ottomans, but later on became quite close to the Hamenian regime. And so there's a sense that he's on the quote unquote wrong side of history, you know, but I find I find many of his works delightful. The character Rakim uh, is this almost idealized character representing this kind of ideal synthesis of Eastern and Western ideas or tastes and traditions. I was pleased to note that he lives in Topane, actually, which is indeed where I live. Uh, so it's a good, good, solid neighborhood. I'm rereading this book for this interview. I, I got uh, this kind of renewed sense, really, the kind of social divides that it um, describes and are dramatized in the novel. We're talking really about social types, caricatures that remain quite recognizable today, really. It's possible to see that they have their sort of analogs in public discourse in present day Turkey. You know, you realize that these divides almost really go back right to the to the modernization process of of the, of the 19th century, really. Yeah, I think there's, it's certainly the case that there are problematics, uh, if I can call them that, that were crucially part of a lot of the debate, intellectual and social debate that went on in the long 19th century, and that continue to be important parts of, of the debate today for modern Turkey and indeed in other countries. So important among these things are, you know, how does one properly engage with the rapidly changing modern world in a way that embraces what it is that change has to offer without losing one's sense of self. I think that's one of the central problematics, certainly, of the of the late Ottoman Empire. Uh, you know, another one is in the rapidly changing conditions. What do these rapidly changing conditions mean for the structure of the family? You know, will the family continue as it has continued before, or is it going to change? And if it is going to change, what kinds of changes should be embraced and what kinds of changes should be viewed as 
dangerous and destructive? You know, that question is often termed the woman question, but I think it's actually broader than, you know, a question about what's going to become of women. It's a question about what's going to become of traditional family structures in general. So a lot of late Ottoman literature is concerned with questions like uh, the position of slave girls as a part of the family, you know, how they fit into the family structure, how a concubine fits into the structure of family life is in part a question about slavery, but in part it's a question about the structure of upper class Ottoman family life and different from other kinds of slavery, let's say. I don't mean that the quality or experience of being chattel is different, but I mean to say that the social question that it poses for Ottoman society is a little bit different. There's the, you know, the issue of to what extent um, sex segregation is going to continue to be an important aspect of Ottoman Muslim society and the problem of women who are left, you know, women without men, if they're unprotected, how will they support themselves? How can they escape from sexual exploitation if they don't have protectors? Uh, there's the further question of imagining the traditional family as one, as a hierarchical family in which the pater familias has ultimate authority. Should we continue to live within that kind of extended family structure? What level of authority should the pater familias continue to exert, not only over his daughters and wives, but over his sons, for example? That whole question of reformulating the family and uh, the relationships within the family is a huge part of the 19th century problematic. Uh, you see it in Felatun Bey'le Rakim Efendi and in many other of Ahmet Mithat Efendi's novels, but in many late 19th century Ottoman novels. And actually, it's a big part of European literature at the same time as well. If you really think about, for example, the novels of Jane Austen and subsequent novels coming after that, a lot of them in the European tradition are focused on the problem of the economic dependence of women and what that means for their affective lives and for society and for the structure of the family. So these there are these things that continue forward into modern post-19th century times, some of these questions. At the same time, there's a tendency to think about these problematics in binaries. So one is either a religious conservative or a liberal modernist. One is either in favor of emancipating women or one is in favor of you know a strict authoritarian family structure under the headship of the father. And and I think that that kind of a, a binary is sort of a subsequent invention that really the debates themselves in the, in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, and indeed even today, are much more nuanced than that. And there are a wide array of points of view. And so one of the things I, you know, I always like to say about Ahmed Mithat Effendi is that he's not a liberal, but neither is he a conservative. He's interested in a kind of middle-class Muslim morality that will engage a modern entrepreneurial vision of the world or capitalist vision of the world, if you will. It's it's not a strictly no change versus radical change binary, if I can put it that way. I suppose one irony is that this very sort of didactic work that gives pretty strong warnings about the dangers of uh, westernization or at least over westernization actually uses the novel form because um, mm-hmm. of course the novel was one of the most it was one of the modern western cultural symbols par excellence really sort of representing bourgeois european taste i mean is that is there an irony there or is it more of a just just a case to, of 
uh, Ahmed Metat practicing what he preached and sort of using the, the best European cultural forms and adapting them to Ottoman contexts? I guess I would say the latter, you know, that it's really an example of, of him practicing what he preached. And he was interested in not jettisoning those things from the tradition, if we can call it that, that seemed valuable and worthwhile and that were an important part of the heritage and identity of himself and of Ottoman society more broadly. But, uh, you know, he didn't see any necessary contradiction between that and embracing many, many things that were sort of newer and coming to the Ottoman world from a variety of sources. And certainly one of his strong objectives, I think, one of something that seemed very, very important to him was the education of, of the population of the Ottoman Empire on as broad a level as possible. And he was quite interested in reaching a wide audience and not just an ultra elite audience. And for one thing, one sees that in, in the Ottoman Turkish that he writes, which is really quite accessible. You know, it's not a complicated, convoluted high style Ottoman uh, although he knew how to he knew how to write in that way if he wanted to he, he really does try to make it a conversational Turkish style that will be accessible to a wide range of people and I think similarly his novels are intended to be entertaining so that people will want to read them and be amused by them one of his most successful productions was a series of novellas and short stories called amusing tales uh, you know he's he wanted them to be amusing and entertaining so that people would want to read them. But he also hoped that through that vehicle, he would be able to reach people with a certain kind of message about, I think, about what the good life might look like, understanding the good life to be a combination of material achievement and spiritual and emotional satisfaction and comfort, and to think about how you could meld those two things together in a way that would work for, let's say, whatever this might mean, the average Ottoman. So I think he, he found the, the story and novel form to be forms that would be widely accessible to a lot of people that would amuse them, and that would be a good vehicle also for opening their eyes to a range of ideas and innovations. Situate the novel in the wider context of post-Tanzimat cultural production. You know, where does this novel fit in with the other novels being produced at the time? To what extent is it a representative text? Well, I mean, this is a period, the, this period of the last third of the 19th century maybe is a period of, of real fluorescence for uh, Ottoman prose fiction. And uh, Felatun Bey and Rakim Efendi occupy, I think, an important, relatively early and seminal position within that. Uh, it's an original work. It's not a translation. Uh, quite a, a bit of the early uh, prose fiction in Ottoman is a translation of European novels. As I say, it's written in a style that is, I think, intended to be accessible. And I think accessibility is really the maybe one of the key points. Uh, in other words, rather than an ideological commitment or an aesthetic commitment to a particular style, romanticism, realism, naturalism, etc., there's a, a sort of practical commitment to accessibility and broadness. And that is a particular maybe characteristic of Ahmed Mithat Effendi's works. It's not a psychological novel and does not have the psychological 
psychological depth that is typical of later, you know, works that come out in the 80s and 90s, let's say, that tend to delve more into the feelings, let's say, of, of the individual characters and to, and to have the characters developed in a deeper way. But nor is it the kind of, nor is it part of the kind of high-flown romanticism that one would have seen in the novels maybe of uh, Namik Kemal, roughly contemporary or slightly earlier to Felatun Bey Ilaraki Mifindi. Do you know of any plans to publish any other Ottoman novels from this era, either from Ahmet Mitat or, or someone else uh, in English? Uh, I don't at this time know of any specific plan to do so, but I would say that I think this is something whose, whose time has come and that broadly in the field of Ottoman studies, uh, I think there is now an interest in uh, seeing translations of important works of the Ottoman period brought into English and made available to students more broadly. I think there's an interesting trend here. You know, 30 years ago, maybe, in Turkey, many Many of these novels were inaccessible if you didn't read Ottoman, and others of them were accessible, but they were only accessible in versions that had been rendered into uh, Republican-era Turkish, so they weren't uh, available in their original language, let's say. And then, uh, maybe 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, uh, suddenly one began to see appearing in Turkey bilingual editions, so editions of Ottoman novels where the novels were published in the modern script, in the modern Turkish script, but also the original language, or sometimes you would see uh, novels that had been transliterated, that is, keeping the original language but rendered into the modern script, and then they would have a lot of footnotes and a glossary attached uh, so that the modern Turkish, you know, the contemporary Turkish reader could read these novels in the original language and have access to them. So uh, that's an important step because it's something that says, no, you don't have to be somebody who wants to be become an Ottomanist at a highly technical level and learn the old script and go back and find the original versions of these books in, in order to have access to them. And it also says that people in Turkey began to think about these Ottoman novels as really the you know an important part of Turkish literature. In other words, not thinking about Turkish literature as beginning after the creation of the Republic, but really trying to think about the continuities between late Ottoman and modern Turkish literature. And therefore, for wanting access, more direct access to those late Ottoman novels. And I think the interest that you now see, that we now begin to see, and then the, in the translation of uh, Ottoman novels into other languages, is the next step in that process, and the sense that the story of the Ottoman Empire in modern Turkey is a story of continuity, as well as a story of change, obviously, and that these are important works, both for the history of the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, and also as literary works in their own right, and that it ought to be possible for people who take an interest in world literature or for people who take an interest in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, but who don't intend necessarily to become specialists in Ottoman history or Ottoman literature, it ought to be possible for such people to have access to these works. Uh, so I think that it, maybe it won't be a great flood, but I think that this translation represents the first step in something that will be a steady stream of uh, work coming out, I would suspect, over the next 10 years, something like that. 
that was Holly Schisler, many thanks to her. That was of course the 100th episode of Turkey Book Talk, so there's never been a better time for you to show the love by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member to support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published, transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, covering Turkish history and politics, literature, and various other things. To become a member and get all that just pledge a minimum of three dollars per episode via turkey book talk's official patreon account also do please rate or review turkey book talk on itunes or whatever podcast platform you use only if you like it of course follow via twitter or like the facebook page and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so please do send any recommendations feedback or abuse to william john armstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks once again thank you very much for listening Virginia!